reading from John 1, uh, verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that light was the, life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives life to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not recognize him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a person's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we'll read from Jude 3 and 4. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I feel compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immortality and deny Christ Jesus, our only sovereign and Lord. So over the last couple of weeks, I started working on a talk that I'm going to be giving at the end of September at an event being held by Faith Tech, uh, one of our local mission partners. It's an event that they run called Faith Tech Talks. It's like tech, to uh, like TED Talks, only talking about the intersection of faith and culture. And so I have been asked to to be a presenter at this, and it's kind of ironic to me because basically the kind of people that they ask are like leaders in like the t local tech industry and and kind of other people like this and. And I know why I've been invited. I've been invited because I'm actually like really low tech. I'm like a Luddite when it comes to technology. And, and it's kind of like, you know, when you go to a zoo and people get excited, they're like, oh, well, look at that strange creature over there. You know, like he's not on social media and he has like an old, really old phone and he doesn't really text a lot. Um, it's like I'm this kind of thing on observation. So I know that's coming and, and I've been doing a little bit thinking about, well, what am I going to say to this group of people here? Uh, and I had this thought, actually, I was just going to bed one night a couple weeks ago and I got up and started writing notes about it because I had this revelation that there was a time in my life when I was the most tech-savvy person around. There was. And so I had this memory. It was from, I was probably like in grade three and our class, What? This is a little a few years ago, but anyways, it was like in grade three, and our class got a computer, a Commodore 64, 
And I can remember it clear as day because they, we came into class one morning and everyone was like, what is this? What is this strange thing that is sitting on a desk here? And what does it mean? And I walked in, and at that point in my life, my father was very um, forward-thinking when it came to technology. Every new technology that came out, he bought. And so we had had a Commodore 64 for probably a year or so by this time. And everyone was looking, including the teacher, saying, I don't know what this is for. I don't know how it works. And I was like, I'll show you how it works. And I sat down and began to type in some code, and things showed up on the computer screen, and people were like, wow, this is incredible. So I was thinking about it that, yes, there was a time in my life where I was the cream of the crop when it came to technology. You have to wait till the end of September to hear the rest of the story, I guess. Um, I don't know what it's going to be, but the past is a funny thing. The past is a funny thing. It's part of who we are, and yet it's so easy to forget. It's easy to forget what has come before us, even in our own lives. Deuteronomy 32, a passage in the Old Testament of the Bible says, remember the days of old, consider it the generations long past, ask your father and he will tell you, your elders and they will explain to you. Remember, this is one of the most commonly used words of instruction by Moses, the psalmist and the prophets, this constant encouragement to turn our minds and our hearts back. D.H. Williams writes that to make any claim for Orthodox Christianity means that the evangelical faith must go beyond itself to the formative eras of that faith, apostolic and patristic, which are themselves the joint anchor of responsible biblical interpretation, theological imagination, and spiritual growth. Now, there's some words in that paragraph that might not make a whole lot of sense to you, so we're going to rewind and unpack it a little bit. The first one is orthodox. What does this mean? Well, a dictionary definition tells us that it means conforming to what is generally or traditionally accepted as right or true. And so this author is talking about orthodox Christianity, a Christianity that is generally accepted across the board. But there are a couple of other words there too, apostolic and patristic. So I got a timeline here for you in the early centuries um, after Christ. And so the first peaks we're going to look at are the apostolic people. So these are the individuals um, who were leaders in the church from the time of the apostles, some of them depicted in the stained glass around us, and others in the decades that would follow, including, you might, if you have good vision, you can read Polycarp of Smyrna at the bottom, one of the the fathers of our faith that we looked at back at the beginning of July. The next era is called the patristic era, which refers to the word patristic has roots in the same word as father. And so these are the church fathers, and a number of names there, including the individual that we're going to be looking at this morning, Athanasius of Alexandria. And this is going to be basically, when we refer to the apostolic and patristic period, this is the formative centuries of the Christian faith, where people were really wrestling through what does it mean to be Christian in the world today. Now, the fathers were not only people who led the church at this point in in history, but there were some other characteristics that went along with them. Um, They had to have substantial orthodoxy, so they kind of that reputation for kind of believing what the church as a whole believed. Uh, They also had to experience or demonstrate a holiness of life. They had to have widespread approval among the other leaders in the church, and they had to be part of this period of antiquity. There are no new church fathers. You can't come up with a church father from the 20th century. It kind of ended where that timeline ends. And so this is where we get this group of people who are considered these founding people. And by looking at their lives and and reading their writings, we can have uh, help us answer the question, how did the earliest generation of Christians believe and live out their faith? Reading the works of the early church fathers helps us, in the words of C.S. Lewis, keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. And so we try to, that's what we're trying to do over this whole course of this entire summer, not only with the church fathers, but with those men and women who have led in the church and been examples of Christ in the centuries to follow. 
So I've quoted from D.H. Williams, and I'm going to do so a couple of other times. He's an interesting author because he is uh, an ordained Baptist minister, but he teaches at a Catholic university. And so he understands this broad diversity of of belief in the church, and, and I think he has a unique voice to share with us. He says, the tradition of the church is just that, the outcome of a testing and sharpening process by which the Spirit moved through the worshiping, praying, baptizing, and confessing community of believers, or what can aptly be called a consensus of faith through time. In his own words, Athanasius held on to what he said was the tradition, teaching, and faith proclaimed by the apostles and guarded by the fathers. And this is part gives us a good sense of what his role was in the long history of the church, was to guard this faith that had been taught by the original followers of Jesus. So Athanasius was born in the year 297, and he died somewhere around the year 373. He was stationed in Alexandria, Egypt, which was the intellectual and political hub and the most important center of trade in the Roman Empire at that time. Uh, my kids, every once in a while, when they reflect back on their childhood, they tell this funny story about how when they were young enough to all have a bath together, that Owen would baptize his brother and sister. They, they pronounce it that way, and I don't know where they got it, but he would baptize them, and uh, they would kind of practice this little, this little thing they'd seen at a church and thought, well, this would be fun to do in the tub. Well, this actually connects really quite directly with that beginning of, for Athanasius. See, one time, he and his friends, they were adolescents at the time, were in the Mediterranean, and they were doing the same thing. He was baptized his friends in the Mediterranean. This was long before the advent of Fortnite, uh, when adolescents had other things to do with their summer. So there he is, baptizing his friends in the Mediterranean, and uh, the bishop, the local bishop Alexander, sees them, and he comes down, and he's like, guys, what's going on here? And he asks them what they're doing, and he said, actually, you did it right. He said, maybe you guys should kind of come under my tutelage, and I could teach you how to do this properly, like, for the rest of your life. And so Athanasius was like, awesome. And so they kind of, he came under the leadership of, of Alexander, and that was the beginning of his, uh, of his career as a bishop. Upon the death of Alexander a few years later, Athanasius became the bishop at the young age of 30. The routine of a 4th century English Egyptian bishop was probably quite similar to what the role of a bishop would be today, all these years later. It would include visitations, attending synods, pastoral correspondence, preaching, and the yearly round of church functions. One of his contemporaries, another one of the church fathers who was on the list we showed earlier, said that Athanasius was accessible to all, slow to anger, quick in sympathy, pleasant in conversation, and still more pleasant in temper, effective alike in discourse and in action, assiduous in devotions, helpful to Christians of every class and age, a theologian with the speculative, a comforter of the afflicted, a staff to the aged, a guide of the young. Not a bad story to be told about his lifetime. And in his own lifetime, Athanasius earned the title, the father of orthodoxy. So, maybe not the first guy you'd invite to a party, but definitely someone that you could trust. The father of orthodoxy. So one of the significant challenges that the church was facing at this point in world history was known as the Arian Controversy. It was a teaching that rose to prominence in the 4th century as Athanasius was bishop, with its figurehead Arius denying the divinity of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote a book uh, called Mere Christianity. It's a very popular book. And in the introduction to his section on the Trinity, he writes, Everyone has warned me not to tell you what I'm going to tell you in this last book. They all say the ordinary reader does not want theology. Give him plain, practical religion. I have rejected their advice. I do not think the ordinary reader is such a fool. 
And I think it's the reason that we want to talk about theology in the church as well. It's nice to know kind of how to live our faith, but understanding kind of the bedrock to our faith is significant. And we'll talk a little bit about how those two things go hand in hand later. After all, theology is really faith that's seeking understanding. Understanding who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit does matter. Even if the diagrams that are drawn about it seem to be confusing, even if it's hard for us to wrap our head around sometimes, understanding who God is matters to the way we live out our faith. So if you take a look at our website, as with most church websites, you'll find a little tab that says about, and if you follow that, you'll find a little section that says our core beliefs. There's a little preamble that says this. We believe the following statements to be true as affirmed in Scripture and embraced by God's people through the years. When we put this together, we try to understand what are the things that, that really that Christians have always believed. I'm not getting into the minutia arguments, but the, the primary things that Christians have always rooted their faith in. And one of the first ones that we'll read, is says God in Trinity. It says that God exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are co-equal and are one God. This kind of language is familiar to probably most of us this morning, but this kind of language was not necessarily par for the course at the time of Athanasius. What exactly it meant to say that Jesus was the Son of God was something that hadn't been clarified with exactitude at this point in history. Using Greek terms, Arians deny that the Son was of one essence or nature or substance with God. He's not the same substance as the Father, therefore not equal to him in dignity, not co-eternal, nor within the real sphere of deity or what we call God. Letter, in a letter from Arius, he writes, We are persecuted because we say the Son had a beginning, but God is without beginning. He is neither part of God nor any lower essence. For this, we're persecuted. And so at this point, while the church believed that, that God had revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, there were people who were teaching in the church, well, no, that's not quite true. Jesus is something different. He was created by God, and he's unique and has a special role, but actually he has no divinity to him. And so this was a problem that the church had to deal with. Their leaders were teaching significantly different things about very core part of the faith. In the year 325, the emperor Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea. Uh, He was concerned about this. He's quoted as saying, uh, basically, that division in the church is worse than war. And so he wanted to kind of get this thing under control. And so he got all of these bishops together to try to hash this out and come up with a clear statement. When I hear the word Nicaea, my mind goes back to my childhood when um, actually attending this church as a child, I would sit in the pew and, and uh, in a Lutheran church, as with other mainline denominations, you go through what's called a, a liturgy, and so you will kind of read through specific functions and specific passages and readings through the course of the morning. And then we would get to a page that looked like this. And it was a bit, for a kid, it was a little bit like a choose-your-own-adventure book, where there were some pages where there was, you do either this or that. And so as a kid, you know, the, I'd look and I'd see the, the Nicene Creed here on the left, and I'd see the little Apostles' Creed on the right. And which one do you think I wanted us to read that morning? Let's do the Apostles' one. It's like less than half the length, and I can get out of here and get to my Sunday school class quicker, right? So I was like, get rid of the Nicene Creed. But uh, so that's what I think about when I hear about this. The Apostles' Creed is a very early creed. The Nicene Creed came a little later in this early fourth century, and part of its hope was to expand the Trinitarian expression to understand that we've got a crisis here and we've got to seek a little more clarity on who we are saying God is. Think about a couple of the songs that we sang this morning, songs that are written to help us uh, through music understand who God has revealed himself to be, to bring the language of these creeds into more common use. 
Toward the early part of this Nicene Creed, we read about Jesus, that he is the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And this kind of expression, of course, finds its roots in Scripture. We had a passage read from John chapter 1, which begins that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So we have these passages, and when we read something like that, we interpret it through the lens that, that these church fathers have passed uh, down through the years. But as D.H. Williams observed, the Bible alone has never functioned as the sole means by which Christians are informed about their faith. It was never meant to. One cannot simply move from the Bible to the chief doctrines of the Christian faith without passing through those critical stages of development that link the past and present together and which make our present interpretation of the Bible intelligible. So they wrestled through, what does it mean? Who, who is Jesus? How is Jesus related to the Father? What are the, where does the Holy Spirit fit into these things? And as these church fathers wrestled with it, and they all got together, and they studied the Scripture, and they prayed together, they came up with these creeds that really have informed our faith in the way that we understand what it means to be a Christian today. They used words that were not found in the Bible to help us understand the words that are found in the Bible. Homoousios, of the same essence, of one substance, this key word that caused this, this division where they couldn't come to this agreement of whether this accurately reflected who Jesus was. At the end of the creed, which of course isn't read in churches, there's a little addendum. It says this, But those who say there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So this wasn't only a positive affirmation of the things that we believe, but it was also a rejection of anyone who's going to teach something different. Of approximately 300 bishops who attended, only two refused to accept the creed. But this was only the beginning of the battle. Athanasius was just getting started during this council. He was there, but he was kind of there as like a junior bishop. He wasn't uh, kind of in his position of authority yet. Alexander was still there. Um, but he stubbornly, on the other side of it, they kind of left this council and were kind of challenged, get out there and teach this and, and firm this up in your churches. And he stubbornly refused to compromise his theological views. He said, what is at stake is not just a theological theory, but people's salvation. Simply put, he meant that if Jesus were not God, if Jesus was not divine, as Arius was asserting, then people were not saved by his coming and death and resurrection. All kinds of people could lay down their life for others, but the fact that Jesus was the divine Son of God made that sacrifice of eternal significance for us. Well, when Constantine passed away, the leadership of the empire changed, and all of a sudden, over the next decades, you know, there was this people who were in favor of Athanasius and people who were who against him. At one point, he was sent into exile for two and a half years for his insistence on teaching about the Trinity. And then he came back, and then again, he was sent into exile for another six years. And then a decade later, another six years. And then there were two more brief times where he had to get out of Alexandria. He had to go into hiding because people were after him because he was teaching that Jesus is the Son of God. As one historian put it, the whole world against Athanasius, and Athanasius against it, half a hundred of years spent in doubtful trial. For 45 years, he was the bishop of Alexandria, and almost the entire time fighting for this thing that they believed at the time was at the core of their faith, and while others were trying to tear it down. 
And so we come to the second reading this morning from this little letter from Jude in the New Testament right towards the end of the Bible. I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. It wasn't just in the fourth century that Christians started having a difficulty on agreeing on what to believe. It was right at the very beginning. As the Bible was being put together, Jude is writing this letter saying, we got to fight for the faith that we've been, has been passed on right from the beginning. And so century after century, the Christian church would get together and they would continue to affirm those things that, that they believe God had revealed. In the middle of the 5th century, at the definition of Chalcedon, therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. A century later, at the Second Council of Constantinople, if anyone does not confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, who is crucified in the flesh, is true God and the Lord of glory, and one of the Holy Trinity, let him be anathema. There was this sense that generation after generation after generation had to wrestle with this faith that had been passed on down through the years and say, yes, this is who God has revealed himself to be. Well, people still talk about this today. It's not a major division in the church as far as conversations are, are taking place. Although I was reminded just the other, just last week, I was talking with uh, the new administrator uh, who's been hired, uh, office administrator by St. John's here, and uh, I was just kind of hearing a little bit about her story and sharing a little bit about my story, and, and she's been an office administrator in a number of churches, including a community that she said she thought was a church and found out after the fact that it wasn't really. Uh, you may have driven by the building. It's, it's called the Unity Center. It's like when you take the flyover out towards uh, the 401 up on the side, it's a big kind of church-like building, and it says Unity on the front. And I wanted to use their own language to describe what she was sharing me to get it right. And so they say on their website, we teach the effective daily application of the principles of truth taught and exemplified by the teacher Jesus of Nazareth. They don't believe that Jesus is divine. They don't believe he's part of the Trinity. They believe he's a great teacher and has some good things to say about our life. And she was telling me, this administrator, about what it was like to work in an environment where they would kind of refer to Jesus, but they didn't believe that he was who he said he was who she believed he was, who the church has always believed. So even though this isn't taking up church councils these days, it is still an issue that we see out in the world around us. It makes me think about an experience that I've had a number of times at our church with some of your children as we're sitting around chatting and you're having a coffee in the gym and and one of your children will kind of run up and throw their arms around my legs and give me a big hug and I'm like, oh, this is so nice. But of course I realize they think like I'm their dad. And it's not because they love me and think I'm wonderful. They're just hugging me because they, they're short and, and all genes kind of look the same, right? And now, of course, it's this awkward moment and they look up and they realize, oh, you're not who I thought you were. And then they go over to the real father and hug a little tighter and then the father feels really good about themselves, right? Like, that's right, my child, you know. Well, understanding who God is is an important thing. Part of our understanding of what it means to be Christian is to be, believe rightly about who God is and live in response. And this is what the church fathers help us with the most. One of the greatest gifts that they've given us, in fact, is the Bible. St. Athanasius wrote in his 39th festal letter what is the first complete listing of the books that we would currently have in our New Testament. He wrote about that period in history as they were forming what's known as the biblical canon, according to what the original eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered unto our fathers. I also, having been urged by true brethren, and having investigated the matter from the beginning, have decided to set forth in order the writings that have been put in the canon, that have been handed down and confirmed as divine. 
These are the springs of salvation, he wrote, in order that he who is thirsty may fully refresh himself with the words contained in them. In them alone is the doctrine of piety proclaimed. Let no one add anything to them or take anything away from them. And so ideas of understanding, of how we're to understand and relate to God, including the Bible itself, handed down to us through these men and women of faith who wrestle deeply with what it means to follow Christ. Believing rightly is huge, but there's a balance to be struck here between believing and living. As I was kind of reading over my notes here this morning, I, I had actually over breakfast just kind of read some headlines in the news about the scandal in the Catholic Church in Pennsylvania that is just exploding about these decades of abuse that's being come to, to coming into the light. And I'm reading this and just the anger swelling up. And, and as I've, again, just gone over what I'm going to be sharing this morning and reading about what's going on in the world, there is this massive disconnect between what people say they believe and how they live. And so all of the work of these church fathers, all of the work of the centuries and the councils and all of this conversation, it was not meant to, to convince us of believing something in our head that we could not live out in our lives. They have to go together. Remember, holiness of life was one of the qualifications to be a church father, and not one of them would have been satisfied with a life of mere belief, of saying, I've got all the doctrine lined up, but I'm doing evil things on the side in denying Christ all along the way. Henry Blackaby, a contemporary author, said, what you do says more about what you believe about God than what you say. And I'm reminded about uh, an event a couple of years ago, maybe three, four years ago, uh, that our youth went to. It was a pitch and praise was the event, and the speaker was a guy named Peter Rollins. And, and Peter Rollins is a very controversial author and speaker, and he said something that just set people on fire. He said, I deny the resurrection. And he said this to a bunch of youth, which was not the smartest thing to say. Uh, and of course, people were all up in arms about this. And, uh, and, it, and if that's what he was saying, uh, if there was no point to it, then maybe it would make sense. But what he was saying was, was that the way we live is a reflection of what we truly believe. And he said, the way that I'm living my life actually denies the resurrection. I am not actually living as though Jesus had been, has been risen from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father. I'm not living that way, so how can I say that I believe it? It was a challenge for us to marry what we believe with how we live. John 1, verse 12, listen to this. This is the, ver the words of Scripture. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe, He gave the right to become. Be belief isn't the end. Believing a doctrinal statement is not the end of the argument. Our belief sets us on the path of becoming. We have this page on our website, an introduction to membership. What does it mean to be a part of our community? We have a, a list of these core beliefs, but we explain what they mean to us, or at least what they, we want them to mean to us. It says, my experience and understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus are reflected in our core beliefs which I affirm as having formational significance in my life. We wrestled with this a lot when we were thinking about this idea of membership. And we didn't want to say that your belonging is contingent on believing some statements. No, we want people to say, my belonging here is contingent on allowing these beliefs to shape and form my life. 
because it's not just about belief, but it's about action. There is a specific theological context that forms us, a strong center that draws us in and sends us out again. And we know what that center is in no small part, thanks to St. Athanasius. Close with a line from the late Rich Mullins, a beautiful song of his, um, previous reiteration of the song we sang earlier this morning of the Creed. He said, I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. I'm going to invite you to stand this morning, and I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to dive into some conversation around tables for the next uh, 25 minutes or so. Lord, we're grateful that all of these years ago, in a time in world history that we can hardly get our heads around, people gathered around to wrestle with who you have revealed yourself to be, and that they laid a strong foundation for us, not only to know what to believe, but how to live our lives in response. We're grateful. We give thanks for that. And Lord, I ask that as we gather around these tables this morning, as we continue to discover what it means to be a community of faith, that you would call us to believe rightly about who you are so that we can hug the legs of you as you've revealed yourself to be, and that you would shape and form us by those beliefs, sending us out to live a life that truly reflects you in all of your goodness and all of your glory. Go with us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.